Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Matilda of Boulogne! With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello! And welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the Queen and Prince Consorts of England, from Elswith to Prince Philip. And as you've heard today, we are reviewing Matilda of Boulogne, the daughter of Count Eustace of Boulogne and Mary of Scotland, and Queen Consort to King Stephen. Mm. Uh, as ever, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram, where we are at Rex Factor Pod. Like the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page and email us at rexfactorpodcast at hotmail.com. And uh, we're a free podcast, but if you'd like to hear more of us, you can donate monthly, join the Privy Council, and access bonus content to help us keep on podcasting. Now, before we get going with Matilda of Boulogne, we do probably need to address the problem of there being a few too many Matildas. Yeah. This is the third of the last four episodes where the subject has been called Matilda. Oh, and there's another one in this, isn't there? Well, yes. To make matters worse, Matilda of Boulogne is a contemporary and rival of the Empress Matilda. Hmm. So, for the purposes of this episode, we will refer to Matilda of Boulogne simply as Matilda. Right. If we refer to her predecessors, then we'll give them their full titles. So, for example, Matilda of Scotland. Mm -hmm. And if we're talking about the Empress Matilda, we will say the Empress. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which is probably how she'd prefer it anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Biography. As ever, we're not exactly sure when Matilda of Boulogne was born. Mm-hmm. Most likely in around 1105, though it could be as late as 1113, because she was married in 1125, and 12 was the minimum age for marriage in those days. We're still just working back from marriage date then. Indeed, yeah. Mm. Uh, as ever, it's useful to explain the of part of her name. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Boulogne itself is on the west coast of France. That's the left. Uh, in the left of France, of course, uh, key for trade with England because the port of uh, Wissant uh, is the shortest crossing to Dover at that time. So as such, it's key for trade with England. Um, however, it's not just Boulogne. It's not just the county of Boulogne, but also it is the honour of Boulogne. Now, this was gifted to her great-grandfather as a reward for his service in the Battle of Hastings. Oh, Wow. So the honour of Boulogne also includes a lot of land in England, particularly based around East Anglia. Okay. Colchester is the administrative centre of the honour of Boulogne. Well, that's confusing. Honour of Boulogne. So the honour of Boulogne is uh, landed territory in England granted to basically the Counts of Boulogne. Okay. And the capital of that, their English bit, is Colchester. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay. It's much easier when it's just Colchester City Council. (laughs) Indeed, yes. Uh, But as such, Matilda's father is thus one of the wealthiest landowners uh, in England. So obviously he's got the county of Boulogne and Lons, but he's also got all of this land in East Anglia as well. The finest spots in the country, I'm sure you'll agree. Indeed. He is also a descendant of Charlemagne, and he is a crusader. Right. He yeah, went on the first crusade, played a prominent role, and his two younger brothers are the first kings of Jerusalem. Oh. Oh. Are they Baldwins? Uh, the second one's a Baldwin. The first one technically wasn't actually crowned 
all titled king, but he sort of counted. But yeah, the the second one, Baldwin, is nice. the first crowned king of Jerusalem. Okay, he's got some. Um, he's really ticking the boxes for uh, chivalry and no, no, not chivalry for like, sort of being the man of Indeed. the um, of the era. Anyway, so very impressive uh, heritage on her father's side, Matilda. Mm. But her matrilineal uh, lineage is also very impressive because she is a granddaughter of King Malcolm III of Scotland and Saint Margaret. Okay. Nice. And that means that Matilda of Boulogne is descended from the Anglo-Saxon monarchs. Oh, good. Okay, so it's bringing that back in again. Exactly. So her mother, Mary, was the sister of Henry I's first consort, Matilda of Scotland. Oh, hang on. Her mother? Yeah. Mary. Her mother is called Mary, and she is the sister of Henry I's first consort, Matilda of Scotland. She's the aunt. She's the niece of... Um... Matilda of Scotland. And thus she is also first cousin to the Empress Matilda. No way! So not only do they share a name, but they are also very closely related. Someone called Margaret gave birth to a a Matilda and a Mary, and they in turn gave birth to two Matildas. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, it's ridiculous. Her close ties to England were such that uh, she seemed to have mostly been raised here rather than in Boulogne. So she receives an education at Bermondsey Abbey, where her mother uh, is later buried. And her impressive lineage, excellent education, notable parents, all makes her an extremely eligible bride. Mm. Mm. But she's got a bit more to her than this, because she is an only child. Yeah. And that means she is the sole heiress to Boulogne, and indeed the lucrative honour of Boulogne. Mm. Right, okay. So yeah, that is... um, Whoever marries her will be a rich, rich man. Indeed, and the lucky man is Stephen of Blois, the future King Stephen I of England. So Stephen is a grandson of William the Conqueror and a nephew of Henry I. Mm -hmm. And his marriage to Matilda in 1125 is very much rooted in the question of the succession to the throne, because Henry's only legitimate son died in the White Ship disaster of 1120. Yeah, so does this add any weight to the to the theory, I don't know if there is one, but I'm mooting it now, that Stephen had been planning this for some time. Well, it's possible. Um, It's possible Henry might have been contemplating Stephen as a potential heir. Uh, Stephen enjoyed lots of prominence at Henry's court in this period, and by arranging the marriage to Matilda of Boulogne, Henry's making him one of the richest and most powerful people in the Anglo-Norman realm. Yeah. And, of course, Matilda's Saxon royal blood, which is something that Henry took very seriously when he married Matilda of Scotland, adds an extra sense of legitimacy were Stephen to claim the throne. Yeah. Sort of marrying into, yeah, the Anglo-Saxon stuff. Mm. Yeah, also has all of the wonga to go with it to to, um, back up his claim. So it makes sense, perhaps, that Henry might have been considering him as a possibility. However... Um, his plans do quickly change in the year of Stephen and Matilda's marriage, because in that year dies Henry's son-in-law, the Holy Roman Emperor. Mm. And that means that Henry's one legitimate child, the Empress Matilda, yeah. now is a viable option in the succession, because when she was married to the Holy Roman Emperor, she couldn't really come over and be Queen of England. But now, it's a possibility. Okay, Interesting. So Henry summons her back to England and has all the nobles, with Stephen very much at the forefront, swearing an oath of allegiance, recognising the Empress as the heir. Yeah, the slimy toad, honestly. 
Anyway, uh, in terms of the relationship between Stephen and Matilda of Boulogne, no letters between them survive, but it does seem to have been uh, a very happy marriage. Stephen uh, is handsome, brave, very personable, and uh, unlike Henry I, seems to have remained entirely faithful to his wife. Mm -hmm. Matilda herself proves dedicated to his cause uh, throughout her life, and perhaps more importantly, they form an excellent working relationship. Mm Mm-hmm. Because uh, Matilda's father actually retires in the same year that they get married and becomes a monk. Oh, hang on. What's happening here? Is this Stephen, the 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 cold, warty hand of Stephen, <laughs> back in play here saying, why don't you retire? Well, it's probably the cold, warty hand of Henry I, to be fair, who's arranging <laughs> oh, right, all this yeah. stuff. Also, perhaps uh, her father Eustace, having been in the Crusades and involved in... Uh, perhaps a bit of a controversial massacre in the siege of Jerusalem, perhaps said sins to absolve. Oh. Uh, but either way, he abdicates his land and titles uh, to Stephen in 1125, but mm. also to Matilda. So she is actually Countess of Boulogne in her own right. Isn't she anyway? So a bit like William and Mary. Oh, right. They are both the rulers of Boulogne. It's not that she's the Countess because she's married to the Count. She's the Countess because she is the heiress of the previous one. So if if she hadn't married Stephen, she would still have been the Countess of Boulogne. Mm, okay. Because Stephen is at Henry's court a lot of the time, Matilda seems to be in charge of the administration of all of their land holdings. So one historian dubbed Matilda the full-time managing director and Stephen the part-time chairman. Oh, okay. Yeah, like an executive role. Yeah, so Matilda's the one who's actually running it day to day and Hen- and Stephen sort of pops in every now and again and gives a bit of direction. Which is fair enough, given that his only input is that he's married into it. He hasn't actually done <laughs> yeah. anything. <laughs> yeah. His, 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 uh, his uh, CV for this job just reads male. Yes. <laughs> um, however, perhaps they both have much grander ambitions than just the uh, honour of Boulogne, because, as you've been alluding to, despite making an oath to the Empress, when Henry I dies in 1135, Stephen acts with somewhat suspicious swiftness, rushes off to England and claims the throne for himself. Where was he? Uh, he was in Boulogne uh, with Matilda, but she was heavily pregnant, and so she remained uh, remained there while he went off to steal the throne. Mm. Do his own project, because right, at the moment he wasn't really doing much with Boulogne. Yeah. He was just bored. He yeah. says, right, I'm going to have my own little business going over in England. We'll uh, live like kings, excuse the uh, expression. <laughs> um, but if he didn't do this, he could have had a very charmed life. Couldn't he? I mean, they would have been extremely wealthy, important nobles in both England and France. Yeah. It's just greed, Graham. Indeed, but I guess from that perspective, if you're saying you could have had a very nice life, he says, well, yes, but equally, I'm sure I could have had a better life as the King of England. Mm. It's quite a lot of admin, though. I'd have, I'd have stuck around France playing golf in my executive role <laughs> with zero admin, <laughs> still lots of wine, rather than what what comes next is what is it 15 years of absolute carnage yeah it probably doesn't turn out to be quite the party that Stephen might have been hoping for no it nearly gets gets off to a very bad start for him because matilda actually nearly dies giving birth um but thankfully she soon recovers and then joins him in england where she receives her own coronation as queen consort um, and similar with william the conqueror and matilda flanders this is kind of the first real regal display of power 
in the new reign, so she probably enjoys all of the pomp and ceremony. Mm. That Stephen himself probably just got quite a quick drive-through coronation. To <laughs> yeah, seal just get it all done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Make it official. Yeah. Put 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 his signature on that, would you? Cheers. <laughs> um, but it's a very good prospects for Matilda as queen consort. She's very much in her prime at this point. She's about thirty years old. She's done with childbearing. She's got a decade of experience of administering uh, a large territory, and she's also got uh, independent wealth and power, which previous queen consorts hasn't had. Mm. Fantastic. She seems w- well equipped. Mm. Whereas Stephen, as I recall from our previous series, all good on paper, not good in practice. And indeed, the challenge, unfortunately, is going to get pretty big for Matilda and for Stephen. As I said, the Empress Matilda had not been in a position to challenge Stephen for the throne in 1135. But mm. over the next few years, Stephen gradually loses the support of key nobles and the deep people in the church. And in 1139, the Empress returns to England, and it's the beginning of the, uh, the conflict popularly known as the Anarchy. Okay, I'm very much Team Matilda here, so I'm hoping that... Do you uh, mean Team uh, Empress? Uh, or? Team Empress, yeah. <laughs> so I'm hoping that um, this Matilda will give me some sympathy towards Team Stephen. So in these early years, Matilda of Boulogne is one of Stephen's uh, closest advisers. She leads uh, negotiations to re-establish peaceful relations with Scotland, 1138-1139. Cool. She's then part of uh, a peace conference at Bath in 1140, where the leading supporters of both sides tried but ultimately failed to resolve the conflict by peaceful means. What, what was she doing there? She was sort of brokering peace. Matilda of Boulogne, um, Bishop Henry, Stephen's brother, uh, of Winchester and uh, sort of Robert, Earl of Gloucester, the Empress's half brother on the other side, just come to have a chat to see if they can find a way forward. Wow, that that's real top table stuff. Then she's the king's oh, representative. Yeah, very much so. Brilliant. Uh, but with the Battle of Lincoln in eleven forty one, it seemed that events had turned decisively in favour of the Empress. Stephen is captured and sent to the Empress as a prisoner. Yes! And now, if only the story ended there. Uh, The church, including Stephen's own brother, Bishop Henry of Winchester, accept that his cause is lost, and the Empress comes to London to be crowned Queen Regnant. Mm. Mm. Looks like it's all there for the taking. Matilda of Boulogne petitions the Empress and Bishop Henry for Stephen's release. She even pledges that he will abdicate the throne if uh, they release him, but the Empress rudely refuses all of her requests. I don't think that's rude, is it? That's just sense. (laughs) I think maybe it was the tone is the implication. Ah, okay. Uh, So diplomacy fails, so Matilda Boulogne turns to direct action instead. Mm. She gathers Stephen's remaining forces, calls upon her connections in Boulogne, and indeed the honour of Boulogne, leads her army to London, and then persuades the city leaders to rebel. Wow. Consequently, the Empress is down at dinner, church bells ring, and she is routed by an angry mob from the city and is never crowned as Queen Regnant. Whoa, hang on. Uh, So the Empress is in London when this happens? Yeah, waiting to be crowned. What did she bribe the people of London with then? Oh, we'll talk about that in a little more detail. Basically, the Empress is not liked and Matilda is. Okay. Wow. That's brilliant. Not only is then she, she's been at the top table in those negotiations, but she can take an army onto the field and manage through these negotiations 
to leave it victorious without any blood spilled. Indeed. I'm always so much more comfortable with a woman in charge, honestly. <laughs> uh, the Empress then goes on to besiege Stephen's brother, Bishop Henry, at Winchester. So Matilda of Boulogne gathers up her army again and besieges the Empress in turn. Brilliant. And once again, the Empress is forced to flee from the city, and in the rout of Winchester, her main supporter, the half-brother Robert of Gloucester, is captured by Matilda of Boulogne's forces. Uh, yes, now he's like the right-hand man to the Empress, isn't he? Yeah, and he's the eldest but illegitimate son of Henry I, so perhaps someone who actually would have been a pretty good king, but not legitimate. Um, how much, uh, sorry for another aside, but how much of an issue do you reckon that would have been? In the, uh, I'm just, you know, uh, Privy Councillors will be aware that I'm currently listening to The Mirror and the Light of the Wolf Hall series. And they talked about uh, Richmond. Was it Richmond, mm. Henry's illegitimate? Yeah, Henry Fitzroy, yeah. Uh, oh, same person. Uh, that clears <laughs> up a lot of stuff. <laughs> okay, um... There was talk at some point of him potentially being named heir. Yeah. But it being obviously not the tidiest solution. Yeah. Was that ever um, an, ever a possibility for Henry? I think it's discussed in... I think it's mentioned in contemporary chronicles about how Robert is asked whether he might consider it, consider claiming the throne and effectively says, no, it, it, that could never be. And it's sort of accepted. It's written at the time, effectively, that oh, he might have been good king, but it couldn't be because he's not legitimate. It's changed a lot, basically, in a few generations, because William the Conqueror, of course, was illegitimate. Oh, yeah. But just the church attitudes and all these sorts of things has hardened quite a lot. Right. Okay, yeah, because it's not too long since all this... We've had hand-fasted wives and things. Yeah. So, you know, that yeah, it has changed very quickly because he, he's gives the impression that he would have been a very competent king for the time. Mm. He had all the sort of Rexy battliness bits. Yeah, and he's well, absolutely essential for the Empress's cause, so mm. she can't really continue without him. So as such, Matilda of Boulogne negotiates a prisoner exchange which results in Stephen being released from his captivity. And on Christmas Day, he is given a second coronation, this time at Canterbury Cathedral, acknowledging the significance of Matilda's Kentish troops, and his royal aura is restored. He's given a second coronation? Yeah, because there's a sense that having been captured and the Empress sort of being about to claim the throne, that perhaps they could maybe do with just giving him a bit of a regal spark. Yeah, wash and brush up and say, let's do this again. Anyway, the Empress has missed her golden opportunity to win the war, though it does drag on for another decade, but never really at the same sort of high drama level that we saw there in 1141. Uh, Matilda Boulogne is sometimes said to have gone into semi-retirement at Canterbury uh, in about 1147. She's actually probably just overseeing the construction of a massive abbey uh, at nearby Faversham, because she does seem to continue to be a vital part of Stephen's kingship, still very much involved in diplomacy and the administration of the country. Mm. Uh, and then by the end of the decade, this focus starts to shift to the next generation. So Matilda of Boulogne is at the forefront in promoting her eldest son, Eustace, against the eldest son of uh, the Empress, which is, of course, Henry Fitzempress. Oh, we know who that is. Yeah, that is indeed. Uh, so Matilda involves Eustace closely in the administration of Boulogne, because he's also mm. going to be the Count of Boulogne, make sure he knows about that, and together with Stephen pushes for him to be crowned as king during Stephen's lifetime. 
Uh, yeah, okay. Just clever. quite common practice in France, and that will also obviously give him a pretty major boost to be able to claim the throne after Stephen dies. Mm. Well, and so, so co-kings, we've had this before in Rex, haven't we? So Henry II himself does actually do this with his uh, eldest son, who becomes known as Henry the Young King. He never actually gave him any power, and then the son actually dies before Henry II. But still, that is the only time that is ever done in England. Yeah, uh, is there and uh, genuine power sharing proposed or? Uh, well, just... the, the young king probably thought yes, and the old king thought definitely, definitely not. Just a way <laughs> to shut him up, basically. Yeah, yeah, okay. Unfortunately for Eustace, nobody agrees to it. The bishops aren't happy, and the pope also refuses. But Matilda's laying very solid foundations to try and win people round. Mm. Uh, and 1152, the nobles do swear an oath acknowledging him as heir, though, of course, they did that for the empress and it didn't work. But still, you know. Mm-hmm. Yep. Unfortunately, though, Matilda Boulogne is not able to do any more to help Eustace or to help Stephen. She was visiting a friend of hers, a rather exotically named Euphemia de Cantaloupe. <laughs> that is someone from one of Rue's Nickelodeon shows. <laughs> Uh, she's the Countess of Oxford, so she is at her home of Headingham Castle. Oh, lovely. Where she is taken ill and then sadly, after a few days, dies on the 3rd of May in 1142, uh, aged about 47. Oh, no. That would have been Headingham in its uh, in its in all its glory, like brand new. Yeah, it's very much brand new. Yeah, so this is its its first owner's. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, off plan. She dies at Headingham Castle. Matilda Boulogne dies at Headingham Castle. That's brilliant. Which I, I feel is perhaps the most significant thing that happens at Headingham Castle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. One owner, she dies, and then... No, so it's the the Earl of Oxford. Oh, that, yeah. Is that a Devere or something? And Euphemia de Cantaloupe. So Matilda's visiting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Headingham. Okay. And dies there. That's rude, isn't it? Yeah, that's the last thing you want to happen. So you've got towels in that room. If you're feeling ropey, we've got a priest. (laughs) Stephen and Eustace are at her side when she dies, and she is buried in that family mausoleum that she'd been building at Faversham. Okay. So that's the life and consortship of Matilda of Boulogne. Let's see how she gets on when we review her. Battleliness! Now, usually with battliness and the consorts, we're not expecting to see actual battliness. So we're instead looking for things like independence of action, agency, a battling spirit, that sort of thing. Mm. But for Matilda of Boulogne, for the first time really since the Lady of the Mercians, we have real and actual battliness. Uh, Her first major contribution, one which I didn't mention in biography, is in 1138 with the Siege of Dover. Mm-hmm. So this is before the huge developments at the castle that Henry II puts in place, but it's still it's one of the most impressive, one of the most important castles in England. Mm. Uh, Robert of Gloucester is fortifying it against Stephen, perhaps preparing for the Empress's return to England. And Stephen at the time is busy dealing with a rebellion in Hereford. Mm. So he can't be there, he's on the other side of the country, so he just sends his wife Matilda to go and capture the castle for him. He's got a lot of confidence in her, and I love that. It seems like a really great uh, relationship, but one that is just uh, rather poor on the male half. <laughs> yeah. So as Orderic Vitalis relates, she was very much up to the job. Mm. The Queen besieged Dover with a strong force on the land side, 
and sent word to her friends and kinsmen and dependents in Boulogne to blockade the foe by sea. The people of Boulogne proved obedient, gladly carried out their lady's commands, and, with a great fleet of ships, closed the narrow strait to prevent the garrison receiving any supplies. Quality. So the Castellan is forced to surrender it to the Queen. Imagine that. A Queen besieging mm. the one of the foremost strongholds in the country that even a King of France couldn't do some generations later. Indeed, yeah. That's really very strong. So she replaces the Castellan with her own cousin. So you've got her own man in there now. And uh, this is decisive uh, success is vital to Stephen's war efforts because not only does it remove Dover as a potential base for the Empress, but also it ensures that Stephen is able to maintain his links to the continent, both in terms of trade and importing mercenary troops. Mm. Because mm. Dover, again, Dover to Wissant is a key connection. So if he'd lost Dover, that's quite a key port. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that would... Uh, well, then it, then it makes the strategic relevance of... Wissant, just like any other port in France. Hmm. Mm, okay. Brilliant. However, by far the most important contribution uh, Matilda makes in battling this is in 1141, after Stephen had been captured at the Battle of Lincoln. Yeah. Because really, this should have been the end of his reign. He's imprisoned at Bristol Castle. The nobles, the church have accepted, basically, that his reign is going to be over. The empress is in London preparing to be crowned. The situation looks absolutely hopeless. Um, you might have expected um, Matilda Boulogne at this point to have just looked for an exit strategy rather than taking the fight to the Empress. Yeah, use that port she's cured. But she is not like most people, and instead she takes the lead with her husband's absence. She tried diplomacy initially, but then when that fails, she utilised the honour of Boulogne, raised an army, gathered Stephen's ex-forces and some of her own, mm. leads it to London... And uh, really, is Matilda against all the odds? As uh, Henry of Huntington noted, the whole people of England accepted the Empress as their ruler, with the exception of the men of Kent, where the Queen and William of Ypres resisted her to the utmost of their power. Who's William of Ypres? Uh, he's a Flemish mercenary captain who fights for Stephen and Matilda. Right. The Empress is partly the author of her own undoing. She was very high-handed with, well, everybody really, but particularly <laughs> with the people of London. Uh, they asked for her to grant liberties. In turn, she said that they should pay her more taxes. <laughs> yeah, that is tough negotiating position. Kind of thing you might expect from, uh, from a king or a queen regnant, but in the circumstances, not the most diplomatic approach. No, she should be bending over backwards for everyone, just to just get me crowned. <laughs> just put, put it on my head. Yeah. Uh, in contrast, Stephen and Matilda had been noted patrons as king and queen in London. Uh, grant, they had granted liberties to the city, and with the Wissant connection, they provide excellent access to European trade. Yeah. Okay, so that very clearly answers my previous question. So Matilda sets up camp on the south side of the Thames with her army, and then she sets about uh, exploiting her personal popularity with the city leaders whilst exposing the Empress's military impotence. So Matilda harries the countryside around London, mm. um, makes it harder, of course, for people to get their food in, also shows that the Empress isn't in a position to defend them. And thus, oh. hopefully, the city leaders will think, OK, there's not really that much motivating us to support the Empress at this stage. Yeah. So Matilda negotiates with the city leaders whilst all this is going on, and finally come to an agreement, church bells are all rung simultaneously as a signal for a mob to run in and attack. 
and the empress was sat down to uh, dinner but is forced to flee both from dinner and indeed from the city itself. Uh, but the crucial thing, of course, is that she doesn't get to be crowned Queen Regnant. No, it's, and that's the closest she comes. And in contrast to the unpopularity of the Empress, according to uh, the Justice Stefani, the Queen was admitted into the city by the Londoners, and forgetting the weakness of her sex and a woman's softness, she bore herself with the valour of a man. <laughs> oh, that got funnier the more I digested it. But she, <laughs> she forgot that she was a woman. Forgot which, the weakness of being a woman. Yeah, which temporarily made her able to do all this stuff. And then yeah. she remembered she was a weak and feeble woman and <laughs> uh, normality returned. But for a moment, she was great. She's also managed to be both more popular whilst kind of harrying the city and the countryside as well. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, uh, um, she's starving out the people who are cha- cheering her on. Yeah. Weird tactic, but better than saying pay me more money, it turns out people would rather have more money than less food. Uh, So she scuppered the Empress's bid to be crowned, but the job isn't finished at this point. Uh, Matilda then works hard to get the key power players back on board with Stephen's cause. Uh, She pledged her own Cambridge estate to security for a loan for the Justicia of London, made various concessions to repurchase the loyalty of people like Geoffrey de Mandeville, who amongst other things was the Castellan of the Tower of London. And she also persuades Bishop Henry to return to his brother's cause. Indeed, it's the vault farce of uh, Bishop Henry that will precipitate the next part of the conflict because he goes off, uh, or he goes back to Winchester, and then the Empress, who's determined to try and regain lost momentum, follows and then besieges him within the city. Mm-hmm. So Bishop Henry appeals to Matilda of Boulogne for help, and once more, she leads her army, which is now bolstered by Londoners and the nobles that are gradually returning to the fray, and heads right back into the eye of the storm and besieges the Empress, besieging the Bishop. Okay, and they're, so they're just fully following her. Maybe it's mm. helpful that it's under the banner of Stephen, but she is very much in charge. Exactly. The wow. uh, situation quickly becomes desperate for the Empress because Matilda ensures that all of the roads have been closely watched so that no supplies can get through to the Empress. Mm. And eventually the Empress is forced to flee once more, and as we said, while she narrowly escaped, her half-brother was captured and she couldn't really continue without him. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the ensuing prisoner exchange sees Stephen restored to liberty and indeed restored to the throne, which when you think about where he was when he got captured in the Battle of Lincoln, Matilda, the Empress, waiting to be crowned, it's quite a remarkable turnaround. Oh, it's incredible, and all due to one person. Um, so arguably, this you could say this is the most decisive moment in the anarchy. This is the moment that the Empress could have won the war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally down to Matilda. Not not, yeah. not Stephen at all. I mean, he's totally out of the picture, locked up. And does she have any um, equivalent of a Robert? Is there anyone that... Uh, you mentioned someone before. I can't remember his name. Oh, there. William of Eep. Yeah. How influential is he? Or, I mean, or is she really genuinely in charge? She's genuinely in charge. So he is important in terms of uh, an actual soldier. Mm-hmm. Mm. But he's not uh, a commander. Indeed, it's very unlikely that the nobles would have agreed to fight under a Flemish mercenary captain because they're not very popular. So it is Matilda of Boulogne is the actual authority. The fact that Robert is sent to her when he's captured indicates that she is the person considered oh, yeah. in charge. Yeah, that's true. 
So as uh, Edmund King, the biographer of Stephen, uh, concluded, in any appraisal of Stephen's kingship, the Queen must be given a leading role, and in 1141 she ensured its survival very much against the odds. Mm. In terms of arguments against her for battling, it seems a bit harsh to criticise her, but she is ultimately on the losing side. Oh man, that's tough. Albeit Stephen is never actually overthrown, but obviously ultimately he recognises Henry II as his heir ahead of his own sons, and it's the Angevins who end up triumphing. Yeah, but it's it's that's when he's doing the decision making. When when he's locked up, she's doing <laughs> just fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly, because this is the year after she dies. Mm. And Stephen's said to be crestfallen. The fight seems to have gone out of him, really, after Matilda dies. And certainly all of the momentum of Matilda's work to have Eustace crowned. So it's perhaps hard to accept, hard to imagine Matilda accepting her son yeah. being disinherited like this. So it's really more Stephen's failing than her own. Never has an expression been more appropriate than the fight left him when she died. She was the fight. <laughs> yeah. Literally left. Yeah. And I suppose you could say, well, she doesn't quite land a knockout blow. She doesn't capture the Empress. She doesn't defeat the Empress. She just sort of gets it back to the status quo rather than winning outright. Oh, man. But these are extracurricular activities for a queen, (laughs) really, at the time, aren't they? I mean, she's not. She shouldn't have to be doing this. No. She's. uh, Yeah, she's picking up extra shifts here. Uh, So, what are you thinking for a score then for Matilda Boyne Battleiness? Really big. Not just in the traditional role of battliness, which is what we'd expect from King's battles. She's got that in spades. Yeah, even though that's not her job. Yeah, it's not her job. If you were to look at her through the lens of previous consorts, independent action, etc., fantastic. I can't see the point in Stephen. <laughs> yeah. It would be much better if she'd just done it instead. All the successful bits of his reign are her. I'll go nine to give myself some wriggle room, because I don't know about Eleanor. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking I'm going... It's tricky, isn't it? Because now, as soon as you get some actual battliness, you then start judging them as a king and thinking, well, you know, you didn't quite do this and you didn't quite do that, therefore I'll take a bit off. Mm. Whereas some of the consorts, you think, uh, the normal ones where we don't have the actual battleness. You think, well, we've shown a lot of fight there and she was getting involved in all of these sorts of things. So therefore, a very high score. And you think, well, but if, if they'd done this as well, then we'd be giving them... Yeah, exactly. I think I am just going to be harsh and just come down because she doesn't manage to land the knockout blow, I suppose. Oh, come on. That's I... like, to me, <laughs> someone who... Um, the groundsman at the football club... Turns up and finds all of the kit all over the locker room floor. Mm. He goes home. He does all the washing himself ready for the next week's game. Someone says you didn't do, use any fabric conditioner on this, mate. Um, but I guess it's similar, I suppose, to like the um, uh, the Lady of the Mercians was going to get the surrender of the city of York, but then died before she could. And you think, well, maybe that's the 10. That's the thing you would have gone, yeah, she did that. Yeah. Boom. 10 out yeah, of 10. Yeah, true. And maybe for Matilda Bloin, I think she does an amazing job, clearly. And she's obviously got great authority and charisma as a leader. She must for everybody to follow her. And I think it's a 9 for me, which is a very high score. It's just because it doesn't quite have that all-out yeah. victory, I suppose. Oh, I was going 9 as well. 
You were going nine yeah, shots. Yeah. I'm not going any lower than you. I'm just explaining why I'm not quite going uh, to okay. ten. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that is a very good start for Matilda of Boulogne. 18 for Battleiness, which is the joint best for Battleiness so far. Boom. That's with Ethelfled, Lady of the Mercians. Scandal. Well, unfortunately, I've got absolutely nothing to go on for Scandal. Mm, you, you, trying too hard to be the perfect consort mm. leaves you open to problems in the future. Exactly. As I said, Stephen entirely faithful to Matilda. Absolutely nothing to suggest that Matilda is any different in that regard. Well, that's a shame. I fear it's got to be a zero yeah. for Scandal. Zero. Subjectivity. Well, we're back on the up here. Uh, so Matilda's not just a big hitter on the battlefield. She's also a very uh, effective diplomat. Um, her first major assignment was with Scotland uh, and establishing peace there. David I of Scotland raided northern England extensively of course uh, in the early years of the anarchy, indeed. But he suffered a crushing defeat in the Battle of the Standard in 1138. Um, and this is something we criticise Stephen for, because despite the fact that he lost, not only did David survive, but he actually secured a peace settlement that improved his position previous to the defeat. Mm, I remember so this, I think. Yeah, his son was made the Earl of Northumberland, and Carlisle, amongst other territories, remained in Scottish hands. Okay. That's no now, good. Matilda took the lead in these negotiations, so that might be seen as something of a failure on her part. But... She's actually playing a rather more nuanced game that makes the concessions worthwhile, as we all see. Although they'd lost the battle, the Scots have still got quite a lot of territory in northern England, and David's opportunism, combined with his profession of loyalty to his niece, the Empress, means that it's pretty inevitable that he's going to raid again when he gets a chance. Yeah. Now, the Empress is the niece of David I, but so is Matilda of Boulogne. I was just trying to work that out in my head, yeah. So actually, he's got uh, skin in both... Camps. Exactly. So she is in a position to secure that winning combination of filial loyalty and naked opportunism <laughs> that is uh, so appealing to David I. <laughs> so, although concessions are made, Scotland, by agreeing this treaty, is now invested in maintaining the peace. So Stephen doesn't have to worry about his northern border anymore. Okay, because from David's point of view, he's made peace with England, which in his mind, is two nieces going at it. Yeah. And, and he's thinking, well, okay, if Stephen's saying that my son can be the Earl of Northumberland and I get to keep Carlisle and all of this, then actually... I'll just stay out. Yeah, good point. But there is also a bigger picture that Matilda may well have had in mind. The Pope had sent a senior diplomat, one Cardinal Alberic, to resolve a religious dispute in uh, between England and Scotland. So he was off in Carlisle. And as well as resolving this, he's also determined to overcome opposition at Stephen's court to restore peace between England and Scotland. Mm. Mm. But thankfully for Alberic, there's somebody that can help, as uh, Richard of Hexham states. He was backed by Matilda's feminine shrewdness and address. They found Stephen at first stern and apparently opposed to reconciliation. But the zeal of a woman's heart, ignoring defeat, persisted night and day in every species of importunity till it succeeded in bending the king's mind. There's always something when they're talking about a woman's success. <laughs> they always have to refer to the gender. Like either she forgot that she was weak and feeble or this is one of the great things about women. They can do this, this and this. <laughs> sort of reminding everyone that whatever's happening, she is a woman. Let's just remember that. It's mad. <laughs> um, indeed, Alberich is so impressed 
uh, by Matilda's efforts to convince Stephen and the nobles that he's content to return to Rome and leave the subsequent negotiations entirely in her hands. She must really impress on meeting like that she must ex- exude confidence and uh, uh competence for people for really important people just to actually stop doing their job and let her do it Stephen mm. now the paper representative in peace negotiations yeah. amazing um and the benefits Ensuing uh, this, I've made clear as soon as he returns, within days of Albert getting back to Rome, this is when Stephen's brother, Bishop Henry, is appointed a papal legate. Mm. So the Pope's sort of main man in England, mm. which might be seen as a tick. Oh, Stephen's it, yeah, box. see, yeah. And then, for an even further uh, bonus, the following year, um, there's a universal council of the churches held where one of the things that is discussed is where the Empress and Stephen put forward delegations to argue their case for who is the legitimate monarch. Mm -hmm. So had the Pope not been pleased with Stephen, he might have uh, been able to really turn the tide and say, no, actually, the Empress is the one that should be Queen. Okay, so the the work that she did enabled him to be able to make his claim. Exactly. Uh, The Empress loses the argument. The Pope declines to intervene on her behalf. So basically Mm. not... Although Scotland get a very good deal out of it, the positives for England are peace with the northern border and thumbs up from the Pope. Yeah, which is worth Carlisle. Apologies, people from Carlisle. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And this is not the only time that she cultivates and manipulates relations with Rome. Uh, One of her primary goals we mentioned uh, towards the end of her life was promoting the interests of her son Eustace. Mm. Um, so actually earlier on in the anarchy she negotiated his marriage to the sister of King Louis VII of France Mm. uh, and also had uh, Louis recognise Eustace as Duke of Normandy Brilliant. and then later on she's working to overcome the Pope's disapproval to Eustace being crowned during Stephen's reign she intercedes on the Pope's behalf at various times including actually after having letters directly written from the Pope requesting her to help out uh, so various religious disputes between Stephen, well, not religious disputes, various personal disputes between Stephen and some of his leading churchmen. So Matilda persuades him to recall the Archbishop of Canterbury from exile, to restore the Bishop of London to court, and to accept Rome's candidate for the new Archbishop of York. Right. So she's a good one to have on your side mm. uh, if Stephen's not listening. And the new Archbishop of York then agreed to make the case for Eustace's coronation to the Pope in Rome when he went to get his stick and Hmm. whatnot. So you can see if Matilda hadn't died when she did, that she's actually laying the foundations for a pretty good diplomatic offensive. She's getting all the leading churchmen on side. She's getting the Pope on side. You know know who she reminds me of? Mm. Have you ever seen Killing Eve? the most senior person in MI6 that we meet, or not actually most senior, but uh, Carolyn, who mm. is um, just just wonderful. Absolutely <laughs> brilliant. And, and I imagine if you were to meet her, she would give off the same aura of calm, cool, competence and confidence. If we were to put Matilda of Boulogne into a Bond film, she wouldn't be a Bond girl, she'd be M. Oh, God, no. Yeah, that is a great, great comparison where would she fit yeah an m yeah completely an m 
Um, now, it wasn't all high-stakes uh, diplomatic engagements, and you'll be very glad to know that she did do her fair bit of religious patronage as well. Oh, thank God. I was looking forward to this. Uh, in 1137, to honour her father and uncle's crusading traditions, she granted the manor of Cressing in Essex to the Knight Templar. What? Oh, uh, gee, which significantly, man. that's the first grant made to the Templars in England and helps kickstart their subsequent popularity in England. Now, you and I know Cressing mm. Temple Barnes is, is, is a place that we both know well. In Essex, but maybe ten, five, ten miles from here. Barnes, because they're, um, it was a farmstead, and they're still there. <laughs> and the uh, oldest, biggest, whatever it is, medieval barn in Europe or something. Yeah, and, and they really are vast. I never knew that they were the first Templar holdings in the UK. Mm. And it's this woman. Well, well, I never. So that's hence Cressing Temple. Yeah, yeah. Templars. Fantastic. Oh, I mean, Rex, fact. <laughs> it's, it's maybe only relevant to me and the other few listeners we have in Essex and surrounding areas, <laughs> but still, love mm. it. Um, she also is a patron of Holy Trinity in Oldgate, um, which partly is associating herself with its popular founder, which was, of course, Queen Matilda of Scotland, mm. her aunt. Uh, but it also becomes deeply personal, and sadly two of her young children uh, died just as infants and ended up being buried uh, at Holy Trinity. In their memory, she built a pauper's hospital, St Catherine's, by the Tower of London, which she then grants uh, to the Holy Trinity for its upkeep. Oh, lovely. Uh, her biggest project uh, is the commissioning the impressive Abbey at Faversham, which was intended to be a dynastic mausoleum. Mm. Um because of the Angevin ultimate victory, it kind of fades into obscurity a bit. But apparently it was incredibly impressive uh, in its size and design. would actually have been equal to Canterbury in size. Is it not there point. then? Uh, I think they're just ruins now because right. it sort of doesn't become quite such a big establishment because mm. why would Henry II honour Stephen's mausoleum? Mm. I see, yeah. Now officially, in terms of her queenship, Matilda is never formally regent for Stephen which essentially is because he only once actually left the country during his reign because of the anarchy, mm. uh, and she went with him. But in reality, she was integral to his rule. Um, and also, when he's off dealing with sieges and rebellions all over the country, she seems to remain in London. Mm. So it seems that she is actually basically overseeing the administration of the country and the exchequer in his absence. So although she's not a, a formal regent, she's effectively doing the job of regent maybe that actually just gives more uh that's more credit to her because there was no need to name regent <laughs> you know it's like obvious who i'm going away who's in charge well clearly matilda's in charge she's in charge when i'm here <laughs> why am i bother saying she's regent against her um her position as Countess of Boulogne, and indeed the money coming from the honour of Boulogne, was quite important in terms of providing and financing Flemish mercenaries that were key to Stephen's cause. Right, what's wrong with that? So the negative is that in terms of subjectivity, they were very unpopular in the country, seen as being unruly and lawless. Well, needs must. Mostly because of the anarchy, there's not really much evidence of cultural patronage Thank from goodness. the of Boulogne. Um, other than perhaps commissioning a Vita, a Vita of uh, her grandmother. Thank God. 
Um, and indeed, a lack of evidence in the sources is a bit of a problem for Matilda of Boulogne. Most of her recorded activity is in those early years of the anarchy. So actually, she doesn't make quite perhaps the impression that, you know, when we saw Matilda of Flanders, Matilda of Scotland did quite a lot of this sort of stuff. We don't perhaps have that same reputation. I suppose there's so much anarchy going on. So subjectivity for Matilda of uh, Boulogne. What do you think? Uh, a lot of good, very good diplomacy, good stuff with the Pope, good stuff with Scotland. There's more good than bad here. Yeah, yeah good definitely. stuff is really punchy. And let's take it back to basics. I would like to be her subject. I know the anarchy the fact is going that you on. You wouldn't want Stephen to be king, isn't the same as not wanting her to be queen. Exactly. Yeah. So she is a, a shining light in this period of darkness here. I'm going above five. I think a six or a seven. Yeah, I'll go seven. I'm going to be slightly more generous. I'm going to go seven and a half, I think. Mm. I feel like she's not quite an eight. I think just because there's a bit of a lack of, a lack of detail. Mm. No, it's very good. She, you would want her as queen consort. And had she had a uh, a different scenario, a different king, mm. <laughs> uh, she could have done even more. Although I suppose, to be fair, if she hadn't had Stephen, she might not have got the opportunity to do all of the cool things that she did. Yes. Yeah, true. But I mean... That's just chance, isn't it? And, <laughs> yeah. You know, she she took, she dealt the cards that she was, she played with the cards that she was dealt, mm. and she's a, she was an incredible poker player with a poor set of hands, set of hands, mm. poor hand set. Well, I don't know, I don't play poker. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a seven from you, seven and a half for me, fourteen point five for subjectivity. Longevity. Uh, so, Matilda Bloin, Queen Consort, from the 22nd of December 1135 to the 3rd of May 1152. Oh, not bad at all. That's a reign of 16.42 years, which gives her a score of 10 out of 20. Bang on. Bang in the middle there. Hmm. Dynasty, not the program. So, Matilda has three surviving children, which gives her a score of 11.5 out of 20. Uh, all female, presumably? Uh, no, because she has, uh, in fact, two sons and a daughter. Um, she actually gets. What? Uh, so she, yeah, she actually gets. She a dies before Eustace. She does, yeah. Eustace dies oh. um, before Stephen, but after Matilda. Mm. So consequently, Matilda actually gets a higher dynasty total than Stephen, because when Stephen yeah. dies, he's only got two legitimate surviving children, but Matilda leaves three behind her. Uh, but as I said, not very long that Eustace survived. So he was furious when Stephen accepted Henry II as his heir, but uh, rather conveniently for everybody else, died quite soon afterwards. Yeah. There's another son, William, who succeeds um, them as Count of Boulogne, but never challenges for the throne and also dies fairly young and childless. So it ends up being the daughter, Marie, who continues the family line as Countess of Boulogne. Anyway, adding all of that together, Matilda of Boulogne gets a total score of 54. Wow, that's good, isn't it? That's uh, pretty good. So that uh, puts her into fifth place thus far. So directly behind Matilda of Scotland and Matilda of Flanders. She just needed to do anything scandalous. Exactly, it's that scandal that brings top her three. down. Yeah. But of course, it's not all about the score. Does she have that certain something, that lasting legacy, the great achievement, the star quality that we call... Rex Factor! Absolute tootin' lootly. She's uh, she's something of a hidden gem, really, Matilda of Boulogne. Yeah, she, to me, is exactly what this um, Rex Factor category is for. Mm. You know, forget your 
Well, don't, because she's awesome. But <laughs> Ma- uh, Empress Matilda, the reason someone as cool as em- uh, Empress Matilda didn't succeed, nothing to do with Stephen. Forget him. He gets remembered in the list of kings and queens. Mm. But it's his, It's this Matilda that we're talking about. Mm. And it's interesting to contrast the record of Matilda of Boulogne and her, you know, really her more famous namesake, the Empress. Really, the Empress kind of overshadows her in many mm. ways. Um, and Matilda perhaps gets dragged down a little bit by her association with Stephen. Mm. But although the Empress probably overshadows Matilda of Boulogne, Matilda is probably is really the more successful queen of the two. The Empress undoubtedly a victim of double standards, like you were saying earlier, about what nobles will accept from a man rather than a woman. But it's interesting that Matilda of Boulogne was actually praised by contemporaries for doing largely the same thing. She acts with regal authority, she raises and leads armies and commands the respect of nobles. The key difference is that Matilda of Boulogne always framed her actions as being a supplicant and acting on behalf of her husband or on behalf of her son. So she's kind of able to use her femininity as an advantage. So people will accept her authority, whereas the Empress came unstuck trying to be both woman and king. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And feel like that uh that conflict within her was at its most uh, apparent in london mm. when perhaps she could have used some of the diplomacy or wiles for to use a horrible expression um that i'm sure this matilda would have done if she were in empress matilda's position in london whereas the empress just thought, no, this is a time to be a king. If I'm yeah. going to be crowned, I'm going to be moody. Yeah, and that's the thing, actually, in a way. You could argue that um, it's the Matilda Boulogne is the one that actually provides the template for a medieval queen regnant and how a woman can be accepted in a position of power. Oh, it's, a, it's so true. Oh, this is twisting my melon, man. <laughs> you can't, it's like you can't have one without the other. Yeah. And this this crucible of all of this, uh, f- f- these powerful women, female power going on at the time, it, you'd think would mean, right, you, this is almost revolution stuff, girl power, it's totally possible to have queens. But it fizzles out because it's like the immovable object meets the unstoppable <laughs> yeah. force. And then Henry II. Mm. But Matilda of Boulogne played her part very well. Certainly. Are you giving it to her? Absolutely. It's a yes from oh, you. Yeah. It's a yes from me. Matilda of Boulogne has got the Rex Factor. Whoop. Well done, Matilda. Well done, indeed. Of Boulogne. So yeah. that is it. Matilda of Boulogne has got the Rex Factor. Well done to her. And it's the first, and perhaps not the only example we'll see, of uh, an unsuccessful king having a very impressive queen. Yeah. Correspondence Corner. Let us know what you think about Matilda of Boulogne. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram, where we are at RexFactorPod. Like the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page and email us at RexFactorPodcast at Hotmail.com. And do remember to send in your hashtag consort cards to provide an episode image for Matilda of Boulogne. Yes, please. Have we had any more? We've not had any for a while, actually. It's sort of fallen out a bit. So if uh, you're stuck with uh, nothing to do in lockdown, then uh, get sketching. Yeah, sketch away. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever you use, and subscribe. 
Uh, we are, of course, a free podcast, but if you'd like to support us financially, you could make a one-off donation via PayPal, and we say a big thank you to Karen Fagan, who has done just that. Thank you very much. Or you can donate on a monthly basis and join the Privy Council to get bonus content. And we have some new Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold. Annika Christensen, Mika, Alex Thompson, Erica Kane, Magda Rubinska, Rain Botics, <laughs> Chloe Hope, Soldfield, Leah Pickenbiz, Georgia, Walking in the Morning, Ginger Mullen, Lauren 3003, Angelica Burton, Stacy Hooker, and Ben Jenkins. Welcome, Arise. Uh, thank you, one and all. Mika. Mika. A fame, a pop star from the recent years. <laughs> yes, I, sh- I assume so. Different spelling, perhaps, but I'm sure it's the same. M-I-K-A? C-A-H. Mika Micah. Let us know. Uh, and uh. now some messages from Privy Councillors who've joined the fold. H-V-H-D-Q-F says, By chance stumbled on the tragic stroke hilarious James II that's the Stuarts, so the Scottish one, episode first almost a year ago and have been listening, loving ever since. Thought it was high time I contributed. Keep it up and can't wait to hear Emma of Normandy. Dunstan forever! Ambeen says, Hi from Phoenix, Arizona. I've loved your podcast for so many years and can't wait to be a privy councillor. Oh, thank you. Uh, From Sarah. You've kept me company on many adventures, from home renos and car trips to adding extra layers of fun and fact to my holiday through England and Scotland earlier this year. My professional bio reads, Sarah loves deep diving into things that other people might not find very interesting, like the symbolism of music videos or the history of the English monarchy. Her favourite king is Charles II. Yes, it is. I look forward to adding member of the Privy Council to the list. Uh, And finally, Michelle. Love this podcast and have wanted to support it for years. Glad I can finally do it. Thanks all. That's fantastic. Really, genuinely, uh, it sounds pithy, but G-Man and I say often, couldn't do it without you. Thank you so much. And to finish off for today, a consort limerick from Louise Brimicum. This is Edith of Wessex. Mm-hmm. When Queen Edith could not have a son, she was packed off to live as a nun. With her dad back in town, she recovered her crown and enjoyed stealing relics for fun. It's brilliant. <laughs> Utterly, I mean, just totally spot on. <laughs> you could, you know, you could just read me those. I know. But the problem is that is... she only does them after the episodes. Ah. Uh, so. Maybe you should have a chat with Louise. Yeah, I'll do the episode and with then her. Just tell, and then... Yeah, and then just tell me the limerick. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's all from us today. Matilda of Boulogne has the Rex Factor, and that marks the end of our little mini-series on the uh, Anglo-Norman consorts. After that, um, which we're doing after all of our little mini-series, having a little bit of a break for me to get a bit of uh, research done. It is a reading week for G-Man. When we are back, we'll do a special episode on the Roman general and politician Sulla. Mm. But then we'll be back to the Queen consorts, and an episode that I imagine a lot of people will be looking forward to, Eleanor of Aquitaine. Of course, she'll be next next one, yeah Wow, is she going to be a double episode, do you think? We'll see, we'll see She does have quite a big life Yeah And quite a dramatic She surely wins longevity Oh, don't give it away Um, (laughs) uh, So, we're out of the woods with all the Ediths and Edgiths Oh yes The Matildas Matildas are also done uh, They're done, because there's now presumably thousands of Eleanors (laughs) Exactly, yeah And then Marys and Margarets Hmm. Oh, good. 
So until then, it's goodbye from me. Cheerio.